The red sands of Mars, a sprawling canvas of rust and desolation, stretched as far as the eye could see. In the midst of this barren expanse, Mars Base Alpha stood resilient, a collection of geometric metallic structures glistening under the harsh Martian sun. As the lead engineer, I spent my days ensuring the base's structural integrity, a task that brought me into contact with every nook and cranny of our man-made oasis. The base, primarily grey and unadorned, was a functional maze of corridors, living quarters and research labs. Its Spartan aesthetic was a reminder of our mission's practical nature. Our routine was systematic and uneventful until that day. We were conducting a standard excavation a few kilometres west of the base, an area we had earmarked for potential expansion. The Martian soil was coarse and unyielding, but our machinery was more than capable. That's when we hit something anomalous. It wasn't like the usual rock formations or ice deposits we occasionally unearthed. This was different. The excavation team unearthed a cylindrical object, not larger than a human forearm, encased in a strange material that was neither rock nor metal. It seemed ancient and alien. Initial scans revealed it was no ordinary find. Inside, sealed within a crystalline chamber, was a substance we couldn't immediately classify. It appeared organic. The team, eager for a discovery, transported the object to the lab for analysis. In the lab, under the stark artificial light, the object became our central focus. The pathogen, we later named it, was unlike any biological specimen we had encountered. It was neither bacterial nor viral in a traditional sense. Its structure was complex, seemingly dormant, yet vibrant under the microscope. The excitement in the lab was evident. This discovery could be a scientific breakthrough, a window into the ancient history of Mars. We were so engrossed in the potential of the find that we overlooked the safety protocols. That oversight was our gravest mistake. Within hours of exposure, the first symptoms appeared in Dr. Adler, the biologist who had first examined the pathogen. His transformation was gradual yet relentless. Skin paled, veins became pronounced and dark, almost metallic in appearance. His movements grew stiff, unnatural. We didn't understand it then, but we had unleashed something dormant, something that should have remained buried beneath the Martian soil. The pathogen, ancient and alien, was now awake, and we, the unsuspecting hosts, were its new vessel. In the confines of the lab, Dr. Adler's condition deteriorated rapidly. His skin turned pallid and taut, stretching over his bones like a thin, translucent membrane. Dark, vein-like structures began to surface, forming intricate patterns across his body. They pulsed visibly, imbued with a black, oil-like substance. Containment breach! I heard someone yell, the words cutting through the lab's frantic atmosphere. The team scrambled, implementing quarantine protocols we had rehearsed but never expected to use. We isolated Dr. Adler in a containment unit, a glass-walled room designed to prevent the spread of unknown pathogens. Through the glass, I watched as his movements became increasingly erratic. His fingers, elongating and stiffening, tapped against the glass in irregular, jerky motions. His eyes reflected a disturbing, metallic sheen. The medical team, clad in protective suits, monitored his vitals. 
which were fluctuating wildly. His heart rate's erratic. Look at the neural activity spikes, one of them reported, her voice muffled behind her mask. Despite our efforts, the pathogen spread. Other members of the excavation team exhibited similar symptoms, their bodies transforming in the same grotesque manner. We established a rudimentary infirmary, converting one of the research labs. But it was soon evident that our medical knowledge was woefully inadequate against this alien affliction. The base morphed into a hospital. The transformed individuals, whom we started referring to as the afflicted, were quarantined, but the pathogen's transmission method remained a mystery. I overheard two technicians speaking in quiet, urgent tones. Is it airborne or contact-based? One asked. We don't know. The scans don't show anything we recognize, the other replied, his voice touched by fear. The afflicted's behavior became increasingly bizarre. They moved with a mechanical jerking gait, congregating near the base's power sources. Their bodies continued to change, sprouting crude, biomechanical appendages that seemed to fuse with the metallic structures of the base. Communications with Earth were our lifeline, but explaining the situation proved difficult. Unknown pathogen, transformation biomechanical characteristics, we relayed, hoping for guidance or assistance. The reply when it came was disheartening. Maintain quarantine, investigate and report. The spread of the pathogen within Mars Base Alpha was like wildfire. One by one, more colonists exhibited the horrifying symptoms. The afflicted, as we called them, increased in number, their presence a sign of our impending doom. The base, designed for scientific research and life support, was ill-equipped for a crisis of this magnitude. Hallways were silent, except for the occasional mechanical whirring and clicking emanating from the afflicted. Our leadership team attempted to maintain order, but panic was a contagion as potent as the pathogen. In the mess hall, I witnessed a heated argument between Commander Anderson and a group of engineers. We need to focus on containment, not evacuation! Anderson insisted, his voice firm yet strained under the pressure. But our families, everyone back on Earth, they need to know, retorted an engineer, her hands clenched in frustration. Amid the chaos, small groups worked tirelessly to understand the pathogen. The lab, now a high-security area, buzzed with activity. Scientists in hazmat suits analysed samples, their faces marked with concentration and fear. But each discovery led to more questions. The pathogen was a complex blend of organic and inorganic matter, rewriting the biology of its host into something unrecognisable. The communications room became our link to a world that seemed increasingly distant. Desperate messages were sent to Earth, each transmission a plea for assistance. Mars Base Alpha compromised. Request immediate intervention. We broadcasted, hoping for a miracle. As the days passed, the situation outside the lab grew more dire. The afflicted began to congregate, their behavior synchronized as if they were communicating in some unfathomable way. They tampered with the base's systems, their biomechanical appendages interfacing seamlessly with the technology. Power fluctuations became common, plunging sections of the base into darkness without warning. During one such blackout, 
I found myself trapped in a corridor with one of the afflicted. Its eyes, devoid of any human emotion, stared blankly as it approached. Its movements were jerky yet purposeful. I managed to escape into a maintenance hatch, my heart pounding as I sealed the door behind me. The realization that we were losing control settled in like a heavy fog. Every attempt to study the pathogen seemed only to deepen the mystery. The afflicted, once our colleagues and friends, were now something else entirely, a new form of life that we had unwittingly unleashed on this foreign planet. In the dwindling safety of the base's command center, a group of us, the uninfected, gathered to devise a survival strategy. The room was stark, illuminated by the glow of monitors displaying maps and vital statistics of the base. Commander Anderson stood at the forefront, his face marked by fatigue. We can't let this spread beyond Mars, he began, his voice steady despite the circumstances. Our primary goal is to survive and contain this, whatever it is. Dr. Liu, the lead scientist, adjusted her glasses, her eyes scanning the data on her tablet. We've observed that the afflicted are drawn to power sources. We propose shutting down non-essential systems to limit their movements. A murmur of agreement passed through the room. The plan was logical but dangerous. Reducing power meant weakening life support systems, a dangerous gamble on a planet as inhospitable as Mars. We also need to secure food and medical supplies, added Maria, the base's logistics officer. Her hands moved deftly over a digital map marking potential supply points. These areas are the least affected for now. We should gather what we can. The room buzzed with activity as we split into teams, each tasked with a specific objective. My team was assigned to retrieve medical supplies from the infirmary, now perilously close to an area heavily populated by the afflicted. Armed with only basic tools and our suits, we ventured into the silent corridors of the base. The metallic walls felt like the confines of a tomb. We moved quickly, communicating through hand signals to avoid drawing attention. As we neared the infirmary, the unmistakable sound of mechanical whirring filled the air. We froze, our breaths shallow. Through the dim lighting we saw them, three of the afflicted, their forms grotesquely distorted, working on a junction box. We waited, motionless, until they moved away, their movements synchronized and purposeful. The path to the infirmary was clear, but the encounter left us shaken. The afflicted were no longer just wandering aimlessly. They were interacting with the base's systems in ways we didn't fully understand. Inside the infirmary, we gathered supplies, bandages, antiseptics, pain relievers, anything that might be of use. The room was a disarray of opened cabinets and scattered medications. The return journey was tense but uneventful. As we handed over the supplies to the safe zone, I couldn't help but feel a small sense of accomplishment amidst the chaos. It was a minor victory, but in our current situation, every small success felt like a significant achievement. The day ended with a debrief in the command center. We were tired, scared, but not without hope. The plan was working, at least for now. But the question that lingered in everyone's mind was, how long could we keep this up? The following day, tasked with rerouting power away from non-essential areas, 
I found myself navigating the lower maintenance tunnels of the base. These tunnels of pipes and cables were claustrophobic. As I progressed, the hum of the base's machinery was a constant companion. The tunnel branched ahead and I took the left fork, according to the map displayed on my handheld device. My heart pounded in my chest from the fear of what I might encounter. The fear became reality when I turned a corner and came face to face with one of the afflicted. It was once Dr. Suresh, a botanist, now barely recognisable. His body was grotesquely mutated, his limbs fused with metallic and wiry appendages, his eyes, devoid of humanity, fixed on me with an unsettling intensity. Frozen in place, I watched as it tilted its head, as if analysing me. The transformation was horrifyingly complete. Dr. Suresh's once gentle face was now a mask of biomechanical horror. Tubes and wires protruded from his skin, pulsing with that same black substance I had seen before. My training kicked in. I slowly stepped back, not wanting to provoke it. But as I moved, Dr. Suresh's arm shot out, a tangle of wires and flesh reaching for me. I dodged, narrowly avoiding his grasp, and stumbled backward. Adrenaline surging, I ran. The sound of my own breaths and the pounding of my boots on the metal floor filled my ears. I didn't dare look back, not until I had emerged from the tunnels into the relative safety of the main base. Panting, I leaned against a wall, trying to calm my racing heart. That encounter was too close. Later, in the safe zone, I recounted my experience. It's like they're still aware on some level, I said, my voice barely above a whisper. Dr. Liu, listening intently, nodded slowly. There might be residual cognitive functions left, or the pathogen could be accessing their memories, using their knowledge. If the afflicted retained their skills and knowledge, albeit twisted by the pathogen, we were facing an enemy far more dangerous than we had realised. Commander Anderson, overhearing our conversation, weighed in. We need to assume they're capable of understanding our systems, maybe even sabotaging them. Our approach needs to be more cautious. In response to the escalating threat, our group's focus shifted to fortifying a central section of the base as a shelter. This area, comprised of living quarters, the command centre and a stocked kitchen, was deemed defensible and vital for our prolonged survival. I joined a team tasked with reinforcing the doors and sealing off vents that could serve as entry points. The corridors echoed with the sounds of power tools and hurried footsteps. Our movements were swift, driven by the urgency of our situation. As we worked, Dr. Liu approached, her face illuminated by the glow of her tablet. I've been analysing the data, she began her voice dense with both exhaustion and a hint of discovery. The afflicted seem to avoid areas with lower temperatures. It could be a weakness, or at least something we can use to our advantage. Her revelation offered a glimmer of hope. We immediately adjusted our strategy, lowering the temperature in the secured section. The air grew crisp, our breaths visible, but the cold was a small price to pay for increased safety. In parallel, teams ventured out to gather supplies. The once familiar base had transformed into a series of strategic points, each expedition requiring careful planning and swift execution. We communicated via radio, our conversations a blend of status reports and terse instructions. 
During one such supply run, I found myself in the medical bay with Maria, the logistics officer. We were there to collect additional first aid kits. The bay was in disarray. As we packed the supplies, Maria paused, her hand hovering over a photo frame on a desk. It was a picture of the medical team, smiling, taken when the base was a symbol of exploration. Hard to believe it's only been a few weeks, she muttered, a hint of sorrow in her voice. Her words resonated with me. The rapid descent from normalcy to nightmare was jarring. We returned to the shelter in silence, each lost in our thoughts about the world we had lost and the uncertain future that lay ahead. Back at the shelter, the mood was somber but determined. Commander Anderson held an impromptu meeting. We're holding our own for now, he stated, but we need to think long term. We can't stay holed up forever. His words sparked a discussion about potential plans, from attempting to reverse the transformation to escaping the base and seeking refuge elsewhere on the planet. Each idea was full of risks and unknowns, but the necessity of action was clear. As night fell on Mars, casting a deep crimson hue over the landscape, our sheltered section of the base felt like a lone ship in a stormy sea. The cold was a constant indication of our fragile safety a barrier between us and the transformed horrors that roamed just beyond our walls. In the ensuing days, our existence within the sheltered section of Mars Base Alpha fell into a grim routine. The cold, a necessary deterrent against the afflicted, was a constant presence seeping into our bones. Yet, it was during these days of vigilance and observation that we began to notice a pattern in the behaviour of the afflicted. From the relative safety of our stronghold, we used the base's surveillance system to monitor their movements. The once human creatures moved with intent that was unsettling. They congregated around the main power conduits and communication hubs, their actions seemingly coordinated. It's like they're trying to understand the systems, maybe even take control of them, observed Dr. Liu, her eyes fixed on the screen displaying live feed from the central hub. Her observations sparked a theory. If the afflicted were drawn to power sources, could we not use this to our advantage? A plan began to form, a risky endeavour to lure them away from critical areas. Meanwhile, an unexpected incident put our newfound understanding to the test. A breach occurred in one of the sealed-off corridors, likely due to the afflicted tampering with the base's infrastructure. The alarm blared, a piercing sound that sent a wave of panic through our group. Commander Anderson quickly organised a response team. We need to seal that breach, he commanded. Arm yourselves. We don't know what's on the other side. Armed with improvised weapons, tools, fire extinguishers, anything we could wield, we approached the breach. The corridor was dark, the only light coming from our handheld torches. As we neared the breach, the silhouette of an afflicted became visible. It was different from the others its form more distorted, as if it had been transformed longer. It moved erratically, jerking in sudden spasmodic motions. Wait, whispered Dr. Liu, her hand raised in a signal to halt. Look at its pattern. It's predictable. She was right. The creature's movements, though erratic, followed a sequence. This observation gave us an edge. Timing our movements with its spasms, we moved past it, quickly sealing the breach with a portable welding unit.
The encounter was brief, but enlightening. The afflicted, despite their transformations, were not entirely unpredictable. This knowledge gave us a semblance of control, a crucial element in our survival. Returning to the safety of our shelter, the atmosphere was one of cautious optimism. Our success in handling the breach, albeit small, was a morale boost. We need to keep observing them, learn as much as we can, suggested Commander Anderson in the debriefing. Knowledge is our best weapon right now. As the Martian Knight enveloped the base, our group, bound by circumstance and survival, settled into an uneasy rest, each of us aware that the battle for our lives was far from over. The next morning, gathered in the command center, our group discussed the plan that had taken shape from our observations. Commander Anderson stood by the main monitor, outlining the strategy. We've seen they're drawn to power. We can use this to create a diversion, lead them away from critical areas while we fortify our position and access more resources. Dr. Liu added, We have limited control over the base's power grid. We can create a power surge in the eastern sector. It's far from here and should draw their attention. The plan was not without risks. The eastern sector was one of the most heavily afflicted areas. A team would have to go there to manually trigger the surge. A dangerous mission. I'll lead the team, I volunteered, aware of the peril but driven by the need to do something proactive. Maria, the logistics officer, pulled up a map of the base. Once you trigger the surge, you'll have a narrow window to get out before they converge on the area. We'll monitor and guide you through the comms. The team of engineers and security personnel was quickly assembled. We equipped ourselves with tools and improvised weapons. As we made our way to the eastern sector, the base felt like a different world. The corridors were silent, the usual hum of machinery replaced by a tense stillness. We communicated in muted tones, each of us alert to any sign of the afflicted. Reaching the power control room, we set to work. The room was intact, but the air was dense with the metallic scent of overheated circuits. I accessed the control panel, my fingers working quickly to configure the power surge. Ready on my mark, I whispered into the comms. Three, two, one, now! I initiated the surge. The lights in the room blinked and dimmed as power was diverted. Outside, the sound of the afflicted stirred, a jarring symphony of mechanical sounds growing louder. We need to move now, I urged the team, and we hurried out of the room. As we navigated back through the corridors, the sounds of the afflicted grew closer. They were drawn to the surge, just as we had predicted, but their response was faster than we had anticipated. Left here? Then straight to the junction, Maria's voice guided us through the comms. We rounded a corner and stopped abruptly. In front of us, blocking our path, was a group of the afflicted. Their movements were synchronized, almost tactical. We're cut off, I reported, panic rising in my voice. Wait, there's a maintenance hatch to your right. It should lead you to a parallel corridor, Maria responded quickly. We pried open the hatch and clambered through, just as the afflicted reached our previous location. The narrow passage was claustrophobic, but it was our only way out. Emerging from the hatch, we found ourselves back in familiar territory, the sounds of the afflicted now distant. We had succeeded in our mission. Back in the shelter, the team was greeted with relief and a newfound respect for the cunning we were up against. Our plan had worked. 
but it was clear that survival on Mars Base Alpha would be a constant game of cat and mouse with an ever-evolving enemy. The diversion had worked, temporarily drawing the afflicted away from our sheltered area and allowing us to reinforce our defences. However, the encounter in the corridors had exposed the increasing intelligence and coordination among the afflicted. Commander Anderson convened a meeting to discuss the next steps. The surge bought us time, but it's a temporary solution. We need to keep ahead of them, he stated, his eyes scanning the room. Dr. Liu presented her latest findings. I've been analysing the patterns of the afflicted. After the surge, they didn't just return to their previous behaviour. They're adapting, learning from our actions. This revelation added a new layer of urgency to our situation. The afflicted were not mindless creatures. They were evolving entities with a growing understanding of our tactics. A new plan was formulated. We needed to establish a line of communication with Earth. Our standard communication systems were compromised, but there was an old emergency beacon in the Western Wing, untouched since the base's construction. It's a long shot, but if we can get it operational, we might be able to send a distress signal to Earth, suggested Maria. The Western Wing was far from our secured zone and deep within the territory of the afflicted, but the prospect of re-establishing contact with Earth galvanized us. A team was quickly assembled, including myself, Maria, and a few others. Armed and cautious, we navigated the corridors, avoiding areas known to be populated by the afflicted. The silence of the base was oppressive. Upon reaching the western wing, we found the beacon in a small dust-covered room. The technology was outdated but functional. Maria and I worked to recalibrate its outdated systems to send a strong, clear signal. Beacons operational, preparing to send the signal. I communicated over the radio. Do it and get out of there as fast as you can, came Commander Anderson reply. I initiated the transmission sequence. As the signal transmitted, however, we heard the unmistakable sound of the afflicted approaching. They had been drawn to the beacon's energy. We've got company moving out now, I shouted into the radio as we hastily retreated from the room. The journey back was a harrowing sprint. The afflicted, now aware of our presence, pursued us relentlessly. We ducked and weaved through the corridors, using our knowledge of the base's layout to stay ahead. Bursting back into the safety of our secured area, we were greeted with anxious faces. Did the signal go out? asked Commander Anderson, his expression tense. It did, I confirmed, catching my breath. Now we wait and hope Earth heard us. We had succeeded in sending a distress signal, but the true test was yet to come. Would Earth respond? And if so, would help arrive in time? The days following the transmission of the distress signal were a blend of anxious waiting and rigorous defence. We monitored the base's communication systems incessantly, hoping for a response from Earth. The mood in the sheltered area was a mix of cautious optimism and underlying fear. During one of my shifts monitoring the communication channels, a faint crackling voice broke through the static. Mars Base Alpha, this is Earth Command. We received your distress signal. Preparing a response, hold position. The message, brief and static-laden, was like a lifeline thrown into our sea of isolation. Cheers and sighs of relief reverberated in the command centre. 
Commander Anderson, usually composed, allowed a rare smile. This is it, people. We're not alone in this. Help is on the way. But our moment of hope was short-lived. An urgent report came from one of our lookout points. Movement outside the northern sector. It's not the afflicted. Looks like survivors. A group of uninfected colonists, previously thought to have been transformed or deceased, had emerged. They were a small band, haggard and weary, but alive. Their leader, a geologist named Dr. Sullivan, explained how they had survived. We've been holed up in an underground research lab since the outbreak, Dr. Sullivan recounted. We managed to seal ourselves in, but our supplies were running low. We had to move. This unexpected allyship bolstered our numbers and morale. The newcomers brought with them new information. They had been studying the pathogen independently, focusing on its biological properties. The pathogen behaves like a hybrid, part organic virus, part nanotechnology, explained Dr. Sullivan. It's programmed to assimilate and transform biological tissue into mechanical structures. This revelation provided a new perspective on the nature of the afflicted. The pathogen wasn't just infecting the colonists, it was repurposing them, part of a larger unknown agenda. With the newcomer's knowledge and our observational data, we began to devise a more informed strategy. Our goals remained the same. Survive, contain, and hope for rescue. But now, we had a deeper understanding of what we were up against. The integration of the new survivors wasn't seamless. Tensions arose, fueled by the stress of our situation and differences in opinions on how to proceed. However, the necessity of cooperation outweighed individual disagreements. Commander Anderson called for a meeting. We're stronger together, he addressed the group. Each of us, from every corner of this base, brings valuable insight. We need to use that, learn from each other, and fight this thing as a united front. We were a diverse group of scientists, engineers, and support staff, bound together by a common goal, to reclaim our base and survive the nightmare that Mars had become. With the integration of Dr. Sullivan's group, our collective efforts took on a new vigor. Combining our observations with their biological research, we started piecing together a more comprehensive picture of the pathogen and its effects. In a joint meeting in the command center, now cramped with additional personnel, Dr. Sullivan presented their findings. The pathogen's nanotechnology aspect is key, she explained. It's designed to integrate with and eventually take over biological systems, but it's not flawless. It has vulnerabilities. Her words sparked a wave of cautious optimism. We've been focusing on the biological symptoms, added Dr. Liu, but if we target the nanotech component, we might be able to disrupt the pathogen's control over the afflicted. The strategy was clear. Develop a means to disrupt the pathogen's nanotechnology. This approach required a precise blend of biological and technological expertise. Teams were quickly formed, focusing on developing a countermeasure, a task that would demand every ounce of our collective knowledge and resources. Meanwhile, as the research progressed, our daily operations continued amidst the constant threat of the afflicted. We had become more adept at avoiding and, when necessary, confronting them. 
Our encounters were still dangerous, but we were no longer the defenseless prey we had once been. A breakthrough came unexpectedly. One of the tech specialists tinkering with a damaged piece of afflicted tissue noticed a reaction when exposed to a specific electromagnetic frequency. It's like it's disrupting the nanotech component, he reported, excitement evident in his voice. We quickly set up a controlled experiment using a captured piece of afflicted tissue. Applying the electromagnetic frequency, we observed the nanotech structures within the tissue faltering, losing their organized pattern. This could be it, said Dr. Liu, her eyes wide with the realization of the potential. An electromagnetic pulse, EMP, could disrupt the pathogen, at least temporarily. The plan was to develop a device capable of emitting a powerful EMP, one strong enough to affect the afflicted but localized to minimize impact on our essential systems. The engineering team, energized by the prospect of a viable weapon against our enemy, worked tirelessly on the prototype. During this period, the bonds within our group strengthened. Meals in the cramped kitchen became impromptu strategy sessions, and the lines between the original survivors and the new members blurred. Dr. Sullivan worked alongside Dr. Liu as if they had been colleagues for years. Their discussions, a blend of biology and technology, were evidence of our united front against a common foe. As we neared the completion of the EMP device, a sense of anticipation filled the base. This could be our chance to turn the tide, to take back control from the pathogen that had turned our home into a nightmare. The completion of the EMP device marked a pivotal moment in our struggle. The device, a cylindrical apparatus filled with coiled wires and circuitry, was our hope. However, to deploy it effectively, we needed a critical component, a high-capacity power cell. The only viable cell was located in the engineering wing, deep within the territory of the afflicted. A volunteer team, including myself, was assembled for the retrieval mission. Armed with improvised weapons and carrying the EMP device, we set out. Navigating through the corridors, we were acutely aware of the dangers surrounding us. The afflicted had become more unpredictable, their movements sporadic yet somehow strategic. Avoiding them required a blend of stealth and speed. As we approached the engineering wing, the familiar hum of the base's power core greeted us. The power cell was housed in a secured chamber, a precaution against radiation leakage. Maria, with her expertise in logistics, led the operation to extract the cell. We'll have limited time once we remove the cell. The power drop will alert the afflicted, she cautioned, her voice steady despite the tension. The extraction was a delicate process. As Maria and the engineers worked on disengaging the cell, the rest of us kept watch. The silence was unnerving, broken only by the occasional clank of tools. Then the power cell was free, its dull glow a sign of its latent energy. Cell secured. Let's move out, Maria announced, just as the sound of approaching afflicted echoed in the distance. Their response was quicker than anticipated. We hurried through the corridors, the heavy cell borne between two of our strongest team members. The afflicted were closing in, their mechanical whirring growing louder. As we neared our shelter, an afflicted appeared around the corner, blocking our path. Without hesitation, Dr. Liu, 
carrying the EMP device, stepped forward. Now! she yelled. I triggered the device. A sharp, crackling noise erupted, and a visible wave of energy pulsed from it. The afflicted convulsed, its mechanical parts seizing up, and then it collapsed, motionless. The EMP worked, but it was a temporary measure. We sprinted the last stretch, reaching the shelter with the power cell. The door sealed behind us, we allowed ourselves a moment of relief. With the power cell secured, our focus shifted to integrating it with the EMP device. The engineering team, led by Maria, worked with meticulous precision. The device, now supercharged with the high-capacity cell, was our best shot at turning the tide against the afflicted. We have one shot at this, Commander Anderson stated solemnly. Once we deploy the EMP, it'll either disable them long enough for us to regain control, or... He didn't need to finish. We all understood the stakes. The plan was to deploy the device in the central hub, the heart of Mars Base Alpha. This location would maximize the EMP's range, affecting as many of the afflicted as possible. Armed and vigilant, we escorted the device through the corridors, each of us aware that the afflicted were never far. Their presence, once human, now a lingering trace of what had been lost, loomed over us. As we reached the central hub, the afflicted began to converge on our position. Their movements were unpredictable, yet there was an unsettling purpose behind them. They were drawn to the device, perhaps sensing its potential threat. We need to act fast, urged Dr. Liu. Set up the device here. I'll initiate the sequence. The afflicted were closing in, their forms a grotesque blend of flesh and machinery. We formed a perimeter, holding them back as Dr. Liu worked. The device is ready, she announced. Activating in three, two, one. She pressed the button, and the EMP device emitted a high-pitched whir. A wave of energy pulsed outward, visible as a fluctuating distortion in the air. The effect was immediate. The afflicted within range seized up, their mechanical components short-circuiting. One by one, they fell to the ground, immobilized. Cheers erupted among our group. The EMP had worked, exceeding our expectations. The central hub was littered with the motionless forms of the afflicted, but our celebration was cut short. The EMP's effects are temporary, Dr. Liu cautioned. We have a window of opportunity to strengthen our defenses and plan our next move. We wasted no time. Teams were dispatched to secure key areas of the base and to gather more supplies. As we worked, the reality of our situation settled in. The EMP was a significant victory, but it was not a cure. The pathogen remained a threat, its potential to rebound a constant concern. In the command center, a strategy meeting was convened. We've bought ourselves time, but we can't let our guard down, Commander Anderson asserted. We need to explore every option, find a way to reverse the transformation or at least prevent it from spreading. After the EMP deployment, our group moved quickly to capitalize on the temporary reprieve. The central hub was now alive with activity. We fortified our defenses, securing doorways and reinforcing vulnerable points. Meanwhile, Dr. Liu and Dr. Sullivan led a team focused on researching the afflicted. The immobilized bodies provided a unique opportunity 
to study the pathogen's effects up close. We need to understand exactly how this thing works if we're going to find a way to reverse it, Dr. Liu emphasized. In the lab, a breakthrough occurred. Analyzing the nanotechnology within the pathogen, Dr. Sullivan made a critical discovery. The nanites are programmed to respond to specific electromagnetic frequencies. If we can disrupt those frequencies, we might be able to halt the progression of the transformation. This revelation sparked a new wave of hope. Our engineers and scientists collaborated, repurposing equipment to create a device capable of emitting the disruptive frequencies. We'll need to test it, Dr. Liu cautioned. And we have to be quick. The EMP's effects won't last forever. A test subject was chosen, an afflicted who had been one of our own, a biologist named Dr. Yuan. The device, a helmet-like apparatus with intricate wiring, was placed over his head. We all held our breath as the machine whirred to life. The effect was not immediate, but gradually, Dr. Yuan's convulsions ceased. His body, previously a grotesque fusion of flesh and machinery, began to revert. The metallic protrusions receded, and his human features slowly re-emerged. Tears and cheers filled the room. The device worked. We had found a way to reverse the pathogen's effects. We need to administer this to as many of the afflicted as possible, Commander Anderson declared. This is our chance to turn things around. Teams were quickly formed to apply the treatment to other immobilized afflicted. Each successful reversal was a victory, a life reclaimed from the nightmare. But our triumph was tempered by the reality of our situation. The cure was not a permanent solution. The pathogen was still present, and the risk of reinfection remained high. We've made incredible progress, Dr. Liu stated in a debriefing. But we're not out of the woods yet. We need to find a way to eradicate the pathogen completely. The days following the discovery of the cure were a blur of activity and emotion. Our base transformed into a field hospital of sorts. Teams worked around the clock, administering the cure to the afflicted, each successful treatment a small triumph in our ongoing battle. The process, however, was not without its challenges. Some of the afflicted were too far gone, their bodies irreversibly altered. The grief of losing colleagues, even in the midst of our successes, weighed heavily on us. In the lab, the research team, led by Dr. Liu and Dr. Sullivan, continued their relentless pursuit of a more permanent solution. We need to understand how to stop the pathogen at its source, Dr. Liu stated during one of our strategy meetings. Our current cure is a band-aid. We need a vaccine or a way to neutralize the pathogen completely. Meanwhile, life in the base began to regain a semblance of normalcy. The mess hall buzzed with conversations and plans for the future. In these moments, we allowed ourselves to feel a cautious optimism. However, the pathogen's shadow still loomed over us. We knew our current peace was fragile, dependent on the delicate balance we had achieved. Then, a new challenge emerged. A group of afflicted, somehow resistant to the EMP's effects, staged a coordinated strike on the base's power core. Their actions were more strategic, more deliberate than anything we had seen before. The attack plunged parts of the base into darkness, creating a panic. Commander Anderson rallied a defense team, including myself. We need to protect that core at all costs, he commanded. 
his voice filled with concern. The skirmish was intense. The afflicted, though fewer in number, were stronger and more resilient. It was obvious that the pathogen was still a formidable enemy. After a tense battle, we managed to repel the attack, but the incident was a wake-up call. Our enemy was adapting, possibly evolving in response to our actions. In the weeks that followed, our base became a fortress of survival and scientific endeavour. The research team, bolstered by recent successes, dove deeper into understanding the pathogen. Meanwhile, our daily routines were punctuated by vigilant patrols and ongoing fortification efforts. Then, an unexpected development shifted our understanding of the crisis. Dr. Liu, while analysing the pathogen's genetic makeup, discovered an anomaly. This isn't just an alien virus, she announced in a hastily convened meeting. The nanotechnology component, it's collecting data. Her revelation sent a ripple of shock through the room. You're saying this pathogen is, what, gathering information about us? Commander Anderson asked, his usual composure shaken. Yes, Dr. Liu continued. And it's been transmitting that data somewhere. This isn't a disease. It's a data collection tool, and we've been unwitting participants. The pathogen was not a mere biological threat, but a tool of an unknown alien intelligence. Our struggle for survival had been observed, analysed, and recorded by an unseen extraterrestrial entity. The mood in the base shifted from one of cautious hope to a deep, unsettling uncertainty. Who's behind this? What do they want with our data? These questions circulated among us, each conjecture more unnerving than the last. As we grappled with this new reality, an encrypted transmission was received on the base's main console. The message was inhuman, a complex sequence of symbols and patterns, but its intent was clear. It was a response from the creators of the pathogen. Dr. Sullivan, with her background in xenolinguistics, worked tirelessly to decipher the message. After hours of analysis, she unveiled its contents. We have observed your struggle. You have proven resilient, adaptable. Your data is invaluable. More will be sent for further study. The message was a declaration and a warning. We were subjects in an experiment conducted by an alien civilization. The prospect of more pathogens being sent to Mars was a threat that extended beyond our base, beyond Mars. It was a threat to humanity itself. With this revelation, our mission took on a new dimension. We were no longer just fighting for survival. We were the first line of defence against an extraterrestrial threat. Our immediate goal remained to find a permanent cure, but we now faced the added responsibility of warning Earth and preparing for a potential interstellar conflict. The base stood ready to face whatever challenges lay ahead. We were scientists, engineers and survivors, but above all, we were the vanguard of humanity on a distant world, standing against the unknown.